Yes, let's get going, everybody. Let's get going. Good evening, everybody. Settle down, settle down. We've had the warm-up act, as Gordon Brown said. Now the real action, the debate. Uh, the motion, leaving the EU would damage Britain's economy. We'll see if we can crack this by uh, 8.40. That gives us um, an hour and 20 minutes or so to, to settle this. Let the results uh, go far and wide. Very few such eminent uh, gatherings as this. Uh, to debate the issue. Um, it's actually, so far in the campaign, it's been a very scenic debate, by which I mean uh, almost everyone has talked about the issue in terms of scenarios. Uh, Oxford Economics had nine scenarios. The Treasury had uh, three scenarios with big ranges around them. Um, and one of the interesting things you actually have to do when you come to deciding on the motion is not just talk about, well, this scenario would mean this and that scenario would mean that. You actually have to think about which scenario is likely, because all these blasted reports never put probabilities on the scenarios. So with a bit of luck, our panel tonight will be talking about scenarios, but also talking about which scenario will occur, uh, not making everything con contingent on it. Now, um, just a few little uh, housekeeping things. Um, the Centre for Economic Reform have asked if you'd use that hashtag, CERBrexit, uh, rather than EU ref, because they don't want this really esteemed event to in any way be uh, lost in the welter of stuff that is hashtag EU ref. So uh, use that one. Um, we're going to have four speakers, two on each side, obviously. Um, we have Stephanie Flanders, who left a prestigious job at the BBC to um, become a chief market strategist for Europe in the city. Uh, Martin Wolfe, uh, chief economics commentator at the FT, uh, both, of course, known to you very well. These are on the Remain side of the argument. To my right, uh, the Brexit side, Gerard Lyons, at the end, chief economic advisor uh, to Boris Johnson. I don't know what he did to deserve that. He was, had a good job in the city at one point. And Roger Bootle. Roger Bootle, executive chairman of uh, Capital Economics. Um, they're going to get seven minutes each. The idea is you then make contributions to the debate, and we'll have quite a bit of time uh, for you to give your point of view. However, before we go, go to that, you will notice you have an electronic handset, um, and we're going to do a little vote. We're going to do it afterwards as well, but we're going to do it before. <coughs> now, let me give you the instructions. The questions and... Um, Options will be shown and I will read them to you. When instructed to vote, you'll get 10 seconds to vote. Uh, you'll see a countdown timer. And um, your, your handset should beep and light up uh, if, when that starts. You'll have your 10 seconds um, and you will press the number that corresponds to the answer. Okay? If this all fails, we're going to put them down and do a show of hands. It's much, <laughs> much easier. But conference organisers love these things. Now, we've got to test a tester question, which is actually also for purposes of data collection. Uh, the tester question is, what is your job? So let's try the tester question. Uh, one is academic economist. Two is a business economist. Three is a lower-paid public sector economist. <laughs> Four, public policy person. And five is journalist. If you're none of those, just pass this one out, OK? Because we haven't given you any... So, right... Your time starts now. 
please vote uh, on which job you would have or like. Uh, no, what do you actually are? <laughs> and the results come, I believe, almost instantly. There we go. And we are seeing that the uh, biggest category, the mode is the business economists and then the academic economists. So look, really <coughs> well over half, well over half of you qualify as economists. That's good. Or are, are employed as economists, whether you're, <laughs> whether you're qualified is a completely, a completely different matter. Right. Um, now, now we're going to just take the pre-debate vote. So the, uh, the question is, the motion, leaving the EU would damage the UK economy. If you agree that it would damage, then you're going to push one. If you disagree, you're going to push two. Don't start. Hold your hand. If you don't think it's going to make a material difference, you're going to push three. And before you vote, I just do want to urge, don't use three as a kind of don't know, not quite sure. If you don't know, don't vote, okay? Um, three is a positive, active vote that says this will not make much difference, okay? Uh, it's not a kind of any other, any other thing. Um, you're going to decide the time frame. You're going to make your own assessment as to what damage means, what the economy means, what the UK is, and what leaving is. OK, so would you now vote on leaving the EU would damage the UK economy? One for agree, two for disagree. One if you're a Remainer, basically. Two if you're Brexiter. And... <laughs> OK. Guys, there's a little bit of, there's a way to go, there's a way to go. You can only win this debate. From here on, actually, actually, for me, the interesting thing is that only, only one in ten of you, one in eleven of you, is saying that it wouldn't make much difference. I personally, I had thought there may be more who would be arguing it's not going to make very much difference. Well, look, on that, let us start... The, let us start the, uh, the, 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 the propositions and oppositions. So I'm going to ask Stephanie to propose the motion, leaving the EU would damage Britain's economy. Thank you very much. I sort of feel like we should just be quiet and uh, <laughs> hope that nothing happens. Um, I have uh, Martin as uh, backup on this. I don't know, those of you who know us might or might not be surprised to hear, I'm going to do the bare bones of the argument, and he's providing the colour. Uh, or maybe another way, I'm sort of doing the skeleton of the argument, and then he'll provide muscle and texture where needed. We're both journalists or former journalists, so there will be no flab, I hope. Um, Gordon Brown mentioned we should be positive, and of course, uh, on this side, we do believe that membership of the EU has been positive for Britain, positive for its economy. It has increased our trade, increased our productivity, helped to improve our performance in absolute terms, in terms of our real living standards per head growth over the years since we joined, and in relative terms compared to our big neighbours, you can see that improvement. But the motion is that leaving the EU would damage uh, the UK economy. So obviously I have to address in a more uh, direct way the costs, the negative arguments against leaving. So let me state that in terms of what I think is not disputed, at least in terms of the sort of the, the bare bones of what I think is, is not disputed actually by either side. 
The first thing that I think is not disputed is that there would be a short-term period after the decision is taken to leave that will, of uncertainty that would be costly, would be negative overall for the economy. Lots of debate about how big that effect would be, but on the day after, even though the other side will tell you nothing would have changed, all the rules and everything else would still be in place, we would still have the same access, at any multinational, any company, any small business, questions would immediately be asked, how does this affect our future trading relationship? What is it going to mean? A multinational with a relationship with the UK, even a small one, will be asking itself, okay, what is the deal that comes out in the end? What does it look like? And should we respond now? to that, or should we just wait and see how the negotiation goes? So I think there's no argument that that uncertainty wouldn't have a cost, and the estimates of range have been in the range of 1, 1.5% of GDP over the next year or 18 months, which is not nothing at all, especially if you think that that's maybe half of the growth we might otherwise have expected over that period, maybe more so if there's a slowdown in the economy. But this is a generational choice, something I sometimes feel that these uh, older voters who now who seem to have quite uh, strong views in favour of leaving should perhaps be thinking not just about their own um, future but that of others. This is something we need to talk about, the longer-term choice. So let's talk about the longer-term impact. Another thing that I think is not actually disputed is that in any conceivable arrangement that we decide to craft, that we then live with in the medium-term kind of scenario... There will be that trade-off that we've heard talked about a lot in this uh, campaign already between market access and sovereignty kind of broadly conceived. And I think given that trade-off, any conceivable arrangement that gives us more control over our borders with respect to immigration is going to make us mean we are less open as an economy, certainly less open to Europe. And I don't know of any economic model of trade which suggests that you can have, that that wouldn't reduce trade. Um, so I think there would be a very clear economic cost because it is very difficult to paint a scenario in which we would not be less open, at least to Europe, and with that scenario you get reduced uh, trade. Now, the other side will say, well, this is all other things being equal, other things are not equal, there'll be lots of other things going on. And I think that's true, and again, being, trying to be sort of crisp about this, I think we have to also accept that the long-term, we would all agree as economists actually here, that the very long-term impact, economically or in any other way, is unknowable to us. But I think, you know, we've seen in some of the scenarios and all these things that, that Evan referred to with the um, Treasury report, the CER uh, analysis out today, that certainly it's easier to identify the, the losses, the potential losses, than the gains. And most of the estimates, Gordon Brown mentioned, you know, three out of four of the studies suggest the long-term impact will be negative. The range of estimates, uh, for example, in the Treasury report, on the order of 4 to 7% of GDP. And some people have said, well, that doesn't sound very much. Well, maybe, but it's half of the sort of measured loss to our future wealth that we've had from the global financial crisis, which was itself, at least by that measure, the most costly crisis we've had, bar none really, certainly in the last 100 years in modern economic times. So it's not nothing at all, even though we accept all of the uncertainty around that. Now, again, the other side will say, 
This is one-sided because it doesn't capture all the dynamic gains we would have of being let free, liberated from uh, the EU. And that's, that's true. By definition, it doesn't take into account those things. But you, in order to claim that you would have all those dynamic gains, you really have to show not just that you would get them, but that they are only possible outside the EU. It's not enough to just say all these deals would be possible, we'll be able to do more trade with China and all these You have to actually show how that's not possible now. We're being actively prevented from doing that now. And I just don't think that's a case uh, that the other side has made. Maybe we'll hear it tonight. They've only asserted that in this campaign so far. They have not made the case in any detailed way. We did have... I mean, we haven't even had the life outside really painted at all. We had Michael Gove this week paint the picture of the Albanian option. Um, and we shouldn't laugh, actually. And, <laughs> all right, let's laugh. <laughs> well, yes, anyway. Um, it's a bit like talking about the Ugandan option, but I'm not going to go into that. It's much more old school. Um, now, in a way, we shouldn't laugh because, uh, you know, it is, that was actually honest because it was accepting that trade-off. It was, wasn't conjuring up an image of sort of Switzerland without the downside or, you know, Norway without the stuff we don't like. Uh, it was actually sort of being realistic. And I, I don't think... We, maybe we'll, we'll hear more about the Albanian option tonight. Maybe that's now going to be what's fleshed out in general. Over the, maybe we will never hear about the Albanian option ever again from the other side, which I suspect is more likely. Okay. Um, but... You know, I do think, again, all of that discussion presumes that somehow politics will not enter into those negotiations on both sides, and it assumes that the politics on the other side will somehow be in the favour of being generous to us, which I, I don't think anyone thinks is necessarily realistic. Um, finally, so I've not got any more time, I think, you know, we're trying to capture a lot in a small amount here, but I, I think we'd also probably have to be honest that in the long term, in the very long term, the narrow economic impact, certainly the quantitative impact on our economy if we left the EU, would end up being less important than the broader, the qualitative, the political impact of leaving. And we may or may not get into some of those things, and I'm talking not just about the impact on us, but also on Europe. But I think it clearly, even as economists, we'd have to say it's going to have more of it. We think it, the most important effects would not be how much it changed the size of our GDP. It would be the kind of economy that we were encouraged to be outside the EU. You know, yes, we would be fine, as people say, we're a successful economy, but we'd be less integrated. We'd certainly be less open and integrated with our neighbours, less connected in lots of different ways with our neighbours. And we would still be just as close to them, just as subject to what's going on there, geographically in other ways. But we would have reduced ties we would have cut off, indeed, some of the ties that we have now. So I think if you have a very narrow sense of sovereignty, if that's all that you care about, and I think that was all that sort of Tony Benn cared about, maybe he put that first, Boris Johnson maybe, feels it's a defensible position that you just say, no, controlling our destiny in this very narrow sense is the most important. But if you have any kind of broader sense of our national security, our broader national interests, our capacity to shape the forces that affect us, not just to respond to them, I think the case is much less clear for the other side. Thank you. Stephanie, thank you very much indeed. So short-term costs, the trade costs with Europe, and raising the key issue, which actually is key, is not, whether you, not only whether you get more trade back with the rest of the world than you might lose with Europe, but, 
but whether the EU is an obstruction, whether the EU is an obstruction to us having more trade uh, with the rest of the world uh, at the moment. Okay, to uh, oppose the motion, Roger Bootle. Thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me, in fact, for inviting me back, because I spoke at uh, some such gathering about a year ago. I don't know what I'm more surprised about, that you've invited me back or I've agreed to come, um, putting my head again inside the lion's den. Uh, let me begin, if I may, with three declarations, at least one of which you may find surprising. The first is that I'm not in receipt of any funding from the European Union. The second is I don't propose to discuss the Albanian option. <laughs> and the third is that I haven't always been a Eurosceptic. Always a sceptic about the Euro, but only comparatively recently a sceptic about the EU. And thereby hangs a tale. So if you like, the late leitmotif of my remarks is going to be change. Uh, change in the EU and the world, and that having an impact on my assessment of this question, whether we should stay in or not. For me, there have been three key stages in the EU's development. The first was the expansion to the east. Now, I'm not going to say this was a bad thing. In fact, I think it was a very good thing. Uh, and after all, it was something that Britain supported very strongly. The error wasn't taking that option. The error was failing to realize that if you did that, you had to alter the nature, the institutions, and the objectives of the EU. If you like, Mrs. Thatcher put it right. You can widen or you can deepen. You shouldn't do both. The EU did both. That, I thought, was a serious uh, error. The second was the euro, an unforced error, as we say in Bridge, a complete and utter disaster. More about that in a moment. And more recently, and you may find this a bit surprising, the continental response, or rather the lack of it, to Mr. Cameron's Bloomberg speech of 2013, January 2013, which set off the whole referendum trail, you'll recall, and a pretty marvellous speech I thought it was too. Uh, and it was marvellous because he didn't say, uh, you know, Britain wants this, Britain wants that, this is our shopping list, Britain needs this exception, that exception, the other exception. What he said was, this is what's wrong with the European Union, it's got lots of good things, this is what's wrong, and this is what needs to be done to put it right. And what did we get as a result of it? I think we got a mouse. Now, the first of these big issues, the question of the eastward expansion of the Union, is the source, really, of our problems with migration. I remember the referendum of 75, and I'm pretty clear that migration didn't really figure. And the reason it didn't figure is that in those days, what it meant for us was the freedom of British people to go and live and work in France, Germans to come here, Italians to go to Germany, and so on and so forth, and it was all roughly balancing. It wasn't an issue. It was the expansion to the east which turned this two-way street into a one-way motorway, which actually produced the problems we now have with migration. The euro. The consequences of this were devastating in all sorts of ways. It's enfeebled the performance of the European economy. Uh, terrible for them, bad also for us. Bad also for the significance of the EU, and indeed Europe more generally, in the world. This is the biggest mistake that the EU has made, and it's had the consequence of the EU shrinking in importance, both for us and for the world as a whole, and it's also, of course, set up something I'll very quickly say something about in a moment, namely this division between the euro ins and the euro outs. And my last factor, the response or non-response to Cameron's Bloomberg uh, speech, what that meant for me was asking myself the question, is the EU reformable? If, when confronted by the prospect of a Brexit, which apparently these people didn't want, and a well-reasoned 
I think, deeply European argument about the future of the EU, if it couldn't, in those circumstances, come up with a reasonable programme for reform, could it ever do so? Now, moving on from that, the single market, I don't think you actually have heard those words yet, but we'll hear them a lot, I'm sure, both this evening and later in the campaign, of course, is of terrific importance. And by and large, it's been a good thing. It was, of course, a British idea. Uh, uh, it's been a good thing. But I think the key issue is how good a thing and why, what costs might attach to it. I think it's quite clear to us that the biggest benefit from the single market comes from them being in the single market because it means there's a single set of European standards to which we have to uh, uh, obey rather than 27 of them. And we still have that benefit even if we're outside it. You don't need to be in the single market in order to trade with it. After all, that's why um, America, Canada, Australia, South Korea, Singapore, every country in the world sells into the single market. And by the way, the growth of their sales into the single market over the last decade or two has been faster than our growth of sales into the single market. Then there's the question of the effect of regulations, single market regulations across the economy. Roughly 12% of Britain's GDP is accounted for by uh, exports to the EU, which means, of course, that 88% is not accounted for by exports to the EU. And the problem is that all the single markets, regulations and rules apply to the whole of the economy rather than to that 12%. And lastly, if the single market is so wonderful, could someone please explain to me why the growth performance of the countries that belong to it has been so bad? I think I've got the answer. It's because whatever benefits flow from the single market aren't actually that big. And they're certainly not that big when compared to the appalling disaster of European macro policy uh, uh, brought about by the euro and also the flood of intrusive and damaging regulations at the micro level. So coming to the conclusion, yes, of course, there are potential loss losses from leaving the EU and potential losers, and there are dangers, but there are also some gains, and I want to list them in what I regard as ascending order. First of all, the budget saving. A lot of people will make a lot of that. I don't actually think it's the, uh, the big thing that some people make it out to be, around about £10 billion per annum, worth having, but not enormous. Then we get to our ability to do trade deals around the world. Now, it's widely argued that without the EU behind us, we would be pretty incapable because the EU's got clout. It's true, the EU does have clout. That is, I perfectly concede that factor. The point is, that's not the only thing that's relevant. Because as well as clout, there's the business of how you get agreement between 28 member countries. And that's much more difficult than getting agreement among yourselves. And so you go to the facts, and what the facts show you is that the EU has been a very bad trade negotiator. It's a bad trade negotiator because this difficulty of coordination, of getting the French Camembert cheese manufacturers to trade off against the German car manufacturers, this difficulty of coordination actually outplays clout. And then there's deregulation. This is, I think, much more important than the earlier point about budgets, and doesn't figure at all, of course, in the recent Treasury study, uh, and potentially can bring very big gains. Now, to be honest about this, the gains aren't necessarily going to come because we might not deregulate. And this, is, I think, is a very tricky question at the heart of all these issues about calculating the gains and losses. But the most important thing, I think, 
This is why I'm going to conclude very briefly. Uh, the most important thing is that we escape from what I think is going to be a very, very awkward position indeed within the EU. That's to say being in the EU but not being in the euro. As they move towards closer integration, fiscal and political, despite Cameron's best efforts, and he's got some sort of deal, but I don't think it amounts to very much, we are going to be in a very, very difficult position indeed. So, uh, I look back on the Euro's performance, and what I see is a bad economic performance, and I think I can sort of explain it. Bad economic performance because it's made a series of bad decisions, of which the Euro is the biggest, but not the only one. The Schengen free, Passport Free Travel Zone was another disaster. Before that, the Common Agricultural Policy, another disaster. Why does the EU make bad decisions? Because its institutions are bad. They don't work very well. And because the fundamental driving force towards harmonisation and ever closer union is the root of very, very bad economic decision-making. These things aren't going to change. In fact, the biggest cost of the EU lies before us. Because an organisation, a set of institutions that can produce the disaster of the euro, heaven knows what they're going to produce in the years to come. So, I conclude quite simply by saying we're better off out. Roger, thank you very much indeed. I just want to ask you, pick up one small thing, because you made a very interesting point about single market. And this, this is, gets to the heart of whether we'll have more regulation and burden some red tape out or in. You said the single market rules apply not only to the bits we export to the single mm. market, but also to everything else we do. Now, is it your view that Britain would be well advised to have a different level of its own standards that are different from the single market if we, if we Brexit. Uh, and then you actually have, not only that you have a kind of businesses who are operating in the single market, have the single market Japanese standards for Japan and a British standard, oh. or would you just rather that Britain did what you know, a lot of us think we probably would end up doing, which is saying why don't we just do what the single market does because yeah. it's kind of not that different to what we would do anyway? Well, I think with regard to those industries that are exporting heavily into the EU, I suspect what they would be inclined to do is just follow European standards. And I think that would be perfectly acceptable. But if you're running a dry cleaning business in Oswestry, I don't see why it makes any economic sense to have your terms of your economic operation dictated by whatever directives appear from Brussels. So, you know, the working time directive, the agency workers directive, we go on and on and on and on. Those we pull out of, but certainly for those manufacturing businesses, I think it could be left up to them. If they want to run on European standards because that's where their main export market is, then let them. And your assumption would be that the British would actually not have agency, its own agency work directive well, or its I, own... I was honest enough time. to say, so unlike some people in this be, debate, yeah, that yeah, it may not yeah, be. That's yeah. why I think the whole business that, of calculation is so difficult. You can't say. People will say they want the facts. There aren't no, facts. No, there isn't a fact. No, no, aside that's, that's from that's assumptions about no, that, I, I, just, things like this. Just wanted to clarify your view. Okay. Well, our next proposer to, to, to finish the case for proposing for the motion that leaving the EU would damage the economy, Martin Wolf. Okay. Um, First of all, it's an immense pleasure to be participating in this with my former colleague and very admired colleague, Stephanie, on my side, and in my view, the only two economists on the Brexit side who are worth taking seriously. And so it's an immense pleasure, and I congratulate the organizers for, for getting persuading them. Roger already talked about this. What I'm going to try and do in uh, seven minutes, you're going to have to focus very carefully on this, uh, is uh, the inverse of Stephanie. I'm going to 
point out why the, the, why the principal points made by the Brexiteers are all wrong. And so I'm going to prove a negative. And I know the problems. Um, and there are 10 points, so you're going to have to focus very carefully. The first point is that membership brings very few benefits. And I, it's absolutely clear that it has brought three huge benefits. Far greater trade, which is discussed in the Treasury report, um, which has greatly improved our level of productivity. And I don't think anybody can deny this is predominantly and overwhelmingly, the literature is clear, been trade-creating. Secondly, nobody mentions this much, but it is unambiguously clear to me, I don't have the time to go through, it, through this, it's brought a stronger competition policy and stronger control over state aid. I can give you many examples. Uh, I shudder to think what we've done on our own. And finally, finally, uh, migration is a benefit, not a cost. Second proposition, membership imposes huge costs upon us. The fiscal costs are utterly trivial, area, error terms, uh, about net 0.3% of GDP, as far as I can see. Uh, I think Roger gave the gross figure. Um, uh, of course, people get very excited about £10 billion. They don't understand how small it is. I do understand that. The UK is supposed to be burdened by terrible regulation. All the evidence is that we are among the least regulated advanced economies. Our crippled labour market has just produced a staggering employment performance. I don't know how we managed to do that. And of course, um, our major and most onerous regulations are, my God, they are, on land use, are all of our own. And uh, the Chancellor just put a massive break whacking up of minimum wages without any agreement from economists at all. Uh, do you really think we're going to have be in a liberal paradise outside it? Number three, if we stay in, the Eurozone is going to dominate the UK and tell us what to do in every way. It's possible, very unlikely. It's not the situation today. In case you hadn't noticed, the Eurozone members disagree on everything. Um, <laughs> if it were to happen and we were dominated, we should leave, but we don't have to leave now. We can decide that when the time is right. And that's a sensible position, and it ain't now. The position number four, we should leave because of the risk of a Eurozone breakup, which will be very terrible for us. I think Gerard argued that this week. I'm sure we're going to hear from that very soon. Um, well, the answer to that is, if the Eurozone were to break up, and there will be a huge depression in the Euro, Euro, EU as a result, we will suffer. We will suffer if we're in, and we will suffer if we are out. It's exactly the same argument as saying that Canada should leave NAFTA because the US, being incredibly incompetent, is going to have another financial crisis. It's quite probably true, and there's nothing we can do about it because they're our main trading partners, and they're going to go on being our main tra trading partners. Number five, we should leave the EU. This Roger got very closely because the EU grows slowly. This is obviously a known sequitur. It's clear that in future our trade with the rest of the world is likely to expand relative to that with the EU. It doesn't follow that the right thing to do is to reduce trade with the EU. The sensible thing is to expand the trade with the rest of the world. And can it be done from the EU? Yes, just ask the Germans or just look at their statistics. Number six, membership stops our opening to the rest of the world. Well, that's a more subtle argument, and Roger's made a subtle point here. But the truth is much deeper than he says. 
I have followed trade policy throughout my life. I suspect it's the only thing I know more about than any of the other three. The three major trade negotiations, the Kennedy round, the Tokyo round, the Uruguay round, which really liberalized trade, would none of them, not one, have happened without the EU. And the EU's clout really does matter because it's a global player and we ain't. And if you think we can open China more on our own than with the EU, I think you're nuts. Number, number seven, it will be easy for the, Roger hasn't mentioned this, perhaps Gerard will, to agree on alternatives. Well, actually, there are four completely different alternatives, the EEA, the Customs Union, the Free Trade Arrangement. I won't mention Albania, I'll mention Switzerland or the WTO. These are hugely different. And let's be very clear, the people on the other side don't have a clue which of them they want to go for. They change their mind all the time because most of them, not these two, haven't a clue what any of this is about. Um, <laughs> But all of them, all of them, the great trade-off here is, which Stephanie has mentioned, the more sovereignty we keep, the worse access will be. Number eight, the EU will definitely cooperate very nicely with us after Brexit and give us whatever we ask when we've finally decided what it is that we ask. One, a divorce is very rarely harmonious. Two, the negotiating power in Brexit will be with the EU, since we do much more of our, our trade is much more dependent, of our GDP is trend, dependent on trade with them than the other way around. And if we went back to MFN tariffs, most favoured nation tariffs in the, in the WTO, I think they would accept it. Not a huge problem for them. We have annoyed and insulted the EU. The terms of our discussion is disgraceful, not here, but much of it has been quite disgraceful. Uh, and uh, the most important thing of all, incomparably the most important thing of all, is we think the EU is a joke. The Germans think it's a vital national interest. And if they will do anything to prevent its dissolving. And the obvious way to do that is to smash us. And if you think that isn't, isn't serious, you just haven't focused on anything that's going on in Europe in the last half century. Number nine, <laughs> the uncertainty costs of Brexit will be small. I don't even need to go on that. We, the, we don't know what we want. We don't know what they will offer. And we have no how long the, know how long the negotiations will last. We've just had a massive financial crisis. Do we really have to do this to ourselves within a decade? Have we gone completely mad? And, and the final point is, this is our very last chance to leave. Of course it isn't. We have an option to leave whenever we want. The option is always available. Brexit is forever. Remain is just for now. The sensible thing, given all the points I made, is to stick with Remain, because Brexit is a vast leap into the unknown, proposed, with a very few exceptions, by people who have no idea what they're talking about. And it will be a monstrous disaster for our country. And <laughs> to oppose the motion, Gerard Lyon. Well, good evening. It's a great pleasure, great honour to be here this evening. Um, actually, I've decided to re-alter my talk and refute the ten points that have just been made by Martin Wolf. Um, I'll see if I can do that. Uh, first point Martin talked about was trade, competition policy and migration. Trade, actually, the reality is that our trade with the rest of the world is growing at a far faster pace than our trade with the European Union. Take the period 2007 to 2014, our trade to the EU grew by 15%. 
our trade over that period to the rest of the world grew by 54%. Indeed, if you take into account the Rotterdam effect, that is goods sold to, Rot go to Rotterdam go to the rest of the world, you could legitimately argue that already the rest of the world has overtaken the EU in terms of trade. Competition policy, I agree with Martin. Migration, yeah, I agree as well, but the issue about migration is not that migration is bad, it's the scale of migration. And I still refer people to Bob Rothorn's great paper. Bob Rothorn at King's College, Cambridge, produced the paper for Civitas last November, December. And the issue is not often this comes out in the debate about the EU about downward pressure on wages, which is unclear. It's about increased pressure on public services, as indeed was a question asked to Gordon Brown. The, the trouble is with being in the EU, we discriminate against the rest of the world. Um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, business people from India, business people from China. Also, as Gordon Brown touched on, the problems in Africa. I looked last summer at the data, the number of people in Africa under 16 already born about to enter the labor force in the next 15 years. 435 million, more than the increase in the labor force in India and China combined. So Europe will have to face a migration problem even if you only assume 10% of those Africans seek to migrate to Europe. So I would argue we've got more flexibility to address issues such as migration. It's not that migration is bad, at least we can control it. Second, the costs. The costs are small. Actually, I would say it's not just the 10 billion, it's the 20 billion, because we can actually decide how better to spend the gross amount. And the important thing is the areas such as science that currently receive EU funding, we can actually fund fully out of our savings. Third, the regulation issue. I tend not to argue about the regulation issue being a reason to leave, but you could actually turn the whole regulation argument, as Martin touched on, to the favour of the leave side. If we are indeed so flexible in terms of labour market regulation, and also the second most flexible according to the OECD in terms of product market regulation, then it really suggests that we should be, as economists, a lot more confident about the ability of the UK to cope with the shock of leaving. Basically, um, there's many ways of looking at this, but a good report from the OECD back in 2005 often referred to highlighted the five things that are necessary for an economy to cope with a shock. Admittedly, they were focusing then primarily on trade, but you could apply it more generally. And the five issues were macro policies that promote stability and growth. They certainly don't have them in the EU, but given we're talking about the UK, some of us might think it could do better. Second, labour market policies that are flexible, definitely. Third, an efficient framework of regulation that helps ensure genuine market openness, definitely. Fourth, an institutional governance framework that will favour structural reform. I would argue definitely. And five, liberal trade and investment policies, and in particular, as the OECD pointed out, particular benefits are likely to arise from the liberation of trade and services. So I would argue in terms of point three, um, still doing well. Um, points three and second part of point three and point four from Martin were about the breakup of the Eurozone. Basically, if we leave the EU, Clearly, we separate and distance ourselves, as Roger touched on, from the potential future problems in terms of the Eurozone. The reality is, over the last decade, the European Union, has, and particularly the Eurozone, has become more centralising, more controlling, at a time when economies globally that have done well have been those that have been more adaptable, more flexible. I would argue that because it's a political project, and it's only in Britain that we look at this from an economic and financial perspective, the likelihood is the rest of the EU will continue to rally round to shore up the Eurozone, 
but that implies greater concentration. And indeed, the next treaty in a couple of years' time, is it the Tallinn Treaty? I think it is. The Eurozone will very much highlight that the tail wags the dog when it comes to the European Union. Five, Martin said about growing slowly, I agree with. I might not have caught all the point. Uh, point six about stops are opening to the rest of the world. Well, the reality is when one looks at the whole issue on trade, and you could combine point six and seven, I would argue, on this with Martin, um, the EU doesn't do very well. It's inward-looking insular. Just look at the total number of trade deals. Um, now, allow for the fact, obviously, the single market is the EU. But um, outside of that, EU trade deals, as Roger touched on, total $7.7 billion. South Korea, in contrast, was $40.8 billion. Singapore, $38.7 billion. Now, this is the area where I really changed my mind a few years ago when I did a report for the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson. We looked at the EU and the impact it would have on London and by implication the UK. And if you'd asked me three years ago, I would have argued because the EU is huge, we should back it in terms of trade. Gosh, when I had, we had about 20 different roundtables with different business sectors across London, the pushback on this was intense. It does vary by businesses, by size, by sector, and by their business model. But the underlying theme was that when it came to EU trade deals, we were one of 28. We were often at the back of the list. And back of the list in the sense that we're a service sector economy and the rest of the EU is not. So much so that I would argue this single market should be renamed the status quo market. It was not really seen as favoring new sectors, small, medium-sized firms. And it leads on to the wider issue of trade, which touches Martin's points six and seven, and also point eight. Um, the EU is a customs union. And 101 economics teaches us that customs unions are bad because they're protectionist, they're anti the consumer. And the EU is a customs union that has, since its start, protected two sectors, agriculture because of France, manufacturing because of Germany. Now, if we were to leave, I don't think there would be damage for our service sector because the single market in services doesn't work particularly well. Open Europe cites the fact that three quarters of the EU economy is services. Only one quarter of the EU is trade in services. So maybe that could change in the future, but we're always told it will change. It really does. More particularly, if we leave, agricultural prices will fall in the UK, food prices. The big tariff barriers are agricultural. Hence, African farmers, Caribbean sugar producers always complain about access to the EU. I, admittedly, the auto sector, partly because it's within that protected block, will face a higher tariff, somewhere between 5 to 10%. Some of our auto producers do sell to the European market. Some, like JLR, those sell to the foreign international market. But in terms of leaving, we do not have to do a trade deal if we do not want to. Go into any shop, pick up almost any item, and Martin touched on China, every good seems to be made in China. Now, admittedly, it's Germany that's exporting to China, but China's next stage of development, business, professional, financial services, it will be Britain, generally, that should have penetration into China. But the important point is that leaving does not force us to be on the back foot. The other points, nine, the cost of Brexit. Um, again, hopefully, I touched on that by saying our ability to cope with shocks. But I would say that there will be a shock. But at the same time, Given that 87% of this audience is pro-EU, the economic consensus on this is not very good. Not just about the euro 
sterling issue. Let's take the ERM and Black Wednesday. Before Black Wednesday, the economic consensus, maybe not everyone in this room, but I'm sure some of them, said that, well, for a start, many people didn't think we would leave the ERM. And those that did said if we did, or that many people said if we did leave, inflation would rise, growth would fall, interest rates would soar, the economy would do badly. What happened? Pounds fell naturally, interest rates fell, fell 4%, I think, from that September to the following spring, the economy did well. Don't underestimate the ability for the economy to cope better, but even so, I do agree with Stephanie and Martin that there will be a near-term shock. Tenth point of Martin was, this is the last chance, about the last chance to leave, we can always, uh, th that point. I would actually say you could turn it around and say, look, if we left, and it turned out unlikely as it may seem that the EU suddenly was a great success story, we can always rejoin. I think it's more likely that we can actually leave. But I'm not going to argue it. It's just a counterpoint. But the other point I would like to say is on the city. We're told that the city will do badly outside. And maybe if I could take 30 seconds on this. Um, the city is a great example of the fact that global trends, global regulation are now starting to influence, certainly in the financial sector. Financial sector is rarely ever in a trade deal because only a handful of countries around the world are experts or so specialised in the financial sector. Yet, seven, whenever it was, 17 years ago when the Euro debate was on, the competition to London was seen as being Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Paris. Now the competition is New York, Singapore, Hong Kong. I do not really see any competition within the EU to threaten London's position. Does that mean it's plain sailing. No, it doesn't mean it's completely plain sailing. But let's not forget that 65 European banks passport into the UK, more than the number of banks here that passport onto the continent. In terms of clearing, the international expert uh, for, in terms of clearing is the LCH, the London Clearing House. That clears swaps and repos, for instance, in dollars, euros, sterling, Aussie dollars, yen. Will it be permitted to do so if we leave? Of course it will. It's not dependent on the central bank providing it with liquidity. If it has to move to Paris, it's like maybe pa Paris will have to have a Panama tag. The business will still be done in London. Maybe given the time, but I've got lots of other points to make on defending the city. But bring it together, I think the key issue is about being global and not just about thinking everything rests on being in the EU itself. Thank you. Gerald, thank you very much indeed. On Newsnight on Monday night, I asked you whether you thought it possible that we would leave the EU and on realistic scenarios, a London-based bank could serve a Singaporean client's needs in Portugal. Now, they clearly can at the moment. Incomplete as the single market is, a London-based bank can serve a Singapore client's needs in Portugal if they, if they so desire. Is it your view... I wasn't clear about your answer on Monday on Newsnight. Have you, what, is, what is the answer no, well, to that question? Well, the answer to the question I said on Monday was that afterwards they wouldn't be able to. But the point I was saying to you is that um, two points after that. I said, one, it's a dynamic situation. It depends on what happens to policy after. And the other point I was saying to you is that the other side of this whole debate that's often overlooked is if you talk to the retail sector in financial services, and I could quote from the government's own competency report two years ago. Let me cite what they were saying about pension no, funds. Wait, wait, wait. But no, no, it's valid because you, you can't... Okay. It, because they were saying how, um, in their own competency report, large parts of the UK financial sector are sort of pulled back 
by aspects of the EU not opening up fully at the moment. Okay, so I'm sure we don't do as well as we could if the EU was more open. But does it not sound like a, a, a very serious problem for the exports that we expect the city to deliver, that they will no longer be able to serve international clients in the EU, but not in but the But you're implying that this becomes a static situation. Um, the reality is that London can actually be quite... Talk, it's talked about behind the scenes as an a la carte menu. London could learn from New York, where to do business in New York, you have to have a presence in New York, qualifications in New York. The reality also within the EU is that probably 80% of the capital markets business, the counterparty, will be based in London anyway. But you're right in terms of your question, and Stephanie's right. on your left there. Um, certain banks, their business model will be impacted right. by it, more so the Americans. Right, well, look, we've had a lot of issues. Thank you, all four of you. Uh, very uh, stimulating. So I'm just going to... Uh, sort of secondary issues, if you like. I mean, we've had the budget. Everybody, you, you, you know, has, has thought that's not important. We've got this fascinating on which I've not heard about the sort of option value, whether you get more option value by voting out or voting in this time. Um, uh, the short-term shock effect, which is maybe 1% or 2% of GDP. I don't think we need to detain us a lot there. We've talked a little about the service sector and the, the sort of specific impact on the service sector, which is obviously a distinctively British export strength. Um, and then I suppose bigger things that have come up are, are we better able to withstand a euro crisis out than in? Are we better able to sign trade deals outside the EU uh, than we are within, um, and, and you can hear arguments on both sides there. And are there dynamic gains from deregulation, dynamic gains from deregulation, abandoning the single market, that would give us, if you like, a supply-side shock, improved productivity uh, more than any of the negative shocks we might derive? So dynamic gains, trade deals, euro crisis, service sector, budget, option value, short-term effects and shock and, of course, a little bit of migration. I'm going to throw it open to you. I, I could try and structure it and say anyone wants to talk about trade, but I, we, we've got a good half hour, and I just don't want to... Um, in any, I, I want to sort of know what it is you want to talk about. So we're going to take some um, comments, points, keep them brief, pertinent. You can make them... You can address them as questions if you want, but in a way I'm going to try and take a number of them and then let people respond. We have roving microphones. Tell us who you are. We'll take the gentleman there first and then the gentleman over there on the other side next with the grey hair. Keep your hand up. Uh, yep. Panikos Dimitriadis from the University of Leicester. Um, the panel addressed a lot of questions, a lot of issues there, but um, I didn't hear anything at all about the future of the European Union itself, what, what Brexit means for that, because it's like, although you're talking about dynamic gains and dynamic situation, we're not really addressing what might happen and how that would impact on the whole world economy. Because once you create a... I think one thing I can trust Britain for doing is negotiating an orderly exit. I can trust that that will happen. And by doing that, it would have created a blueprint for others to exit. And I think that would raise the probability of... of, uh, of other countries exiting, including, for example, Greece. Grexit, I think, would become immediately more, li more likely. So I think what we need to think about is how the world would look 25 years from now if the European Union is not there, or even 10 years from now. Because that 
would have implications for everyone. Okay, good point. Pandora's box argument, and certainly the Swedes have talked about perhaps having a referendum very quickly after the, uh, after the British. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, Graham Bishop, uh, a very simple question. Could the, the leavers, Gerard and uh, Roger, be absolutely clear what sort of trade relations that they would like to have with the EU after we leave? The Swiss model, as far as I understand it, is off the agenda because the EU isn't going to do that anymore. So it's either EEA, with all its free movement of people, or WTO, which, as you've said, doesn't include services. What does that then do for the city? And you've touched on that, but if the city doesn't have that passport, um, I think it's about three quarters of securities firms use their passport, their MIFID passport, to do securities business in the EU or the Eurozone. They will lose that instantly. What does that do for us? I think that's it. Let's ask you both on this side to, to say what, you, what your kind of expectation is of the regime that would prevail after the negotiation after two years. Roger first. Can I start that? Yes. There are, of course, some people on my side who trumpet the merits of the Norway model. Now, personally, I can't see what the point would be of leaving the EU and taking the Norway option, let's just say EEA. It's not true that Norway has to swallow all EU regulations. It doesn't, but pretty much. Um, uh, and, of course, it still makes a contribution to the EU budget. It got out of the EU common fisheries policy, which was particularly relevant to Norway, less relevant, obviously, to us. Uh, and it's got no formal role in, um, in, in making the rules. So I can't see the point of the Norway option at all. But there are some people who do think that. Um, Switzerland, as you rightly say, isn't is, were on the cards. Now, I've actually been arguing all along that I think the intellectually honest thing to do on our side is to argue the case on the basis of the WTO. Um, I happen to think we'll get a better deal than that because our trade relations are uh, pretty close and it will be in both sides' economic interests to come up with a deal, a close deal. But I don't think it would be right to assume that that was going to happen, and various people, Martin's argued eloquently, uh, that we wouldn't exactly be flavour of the month. So it's possible that the economic self-interest arguments wouldn't prevail. So I would base my assumptions on the WTO only and hope to do, hope to do better. Financial services would be clearly in the zone we were talking about earlier. But there's one very specific and rather important point about the WTO and trade deals, which is if we sign a deal with the EU in which we don't have tariffs from the EU, is it not the case we can then not have tariffs for anybody else? And if we are pre-committed under the WTO model to not having tariffs with anybody else, why will anybody else... What, what bargaining power do we have when it comes to trade deals with the United States or with Japan or with China? But, but you don't need to have trade deals to trade. That's the way to think about it. It's a very liberalising experience. If you actually think about it, the agricultural sector in the UK is the sector that gets hit because that's a protected sector. The financial sector is an important sector for the UK, but... What we're seeing in terms of the financial sector is that financial sector never figures in any trade deal anywhere, anytime. It's a very different so thing. But the service sector, it's a very open thing. It allows you to actually uh, limit migration flows and control migration. I would actually suggest that the Whitehall will be working on a Norway deal as the first step. Uh, if White, I would imagine the guys in Whitehall, if they're actually doing contingency work, which they should, 
the first two years you don't do anything anyway because it doesn't change. But they would probably be looking, I would imagine, for something that's EU light, which is, as Roger touched on, very similar. You said something really important. You said trade deals are not what we're talking about when we say being more global and expanding our relationship with the rest of the world. But I thought the problem was what then is inhibiting our trade with the rest of the world other than that we can't sign trade well, deals on well our own? Well, the point is it's not just about trade deals. It's about a whole host of other issues. It's about the sovereignty, as was touched on. It's about migration issues. As no, no, but, but on, on trade specifically, yeah. is the contention that we could trade more with the rest of the world within the EU? Because then a, a good option would just be to trade more with the rest of the world no, rather we, than to leave the EU. Whether, no, I, I've argued this as well. Whether we stay in the EU or leave the EU, there are certain big okay. economic issues in the UK that need to be addressed anyway. And Roger's just done this recent pamphlet book on the whole trade issue with John Mills, which touches on this point as well. Do you want to come in on either of you on that? Yes. I'm the, well, uh, uh, there are obviously an incredibly large number of points which I'm, will lead to the conclusion... Um, should I ignore the, the question of the future of the EU without the UK? UK? No, no, just on okay. on this specific issue, on this specific issue, I do find, even with these very distinguished gentlemen who have thought about it more than most, I find it very difficult fully to understand what they're proposing. And, and this is not because I don't know anything about trade, because I said this is something I really have thought a lot about. So, I agree with Roger, EEA is a nonsense. Obviously, it's leaving without leaving. Uh, that, that sort of um, mad. The Swiss sort of arrangement work, doesn't work. So the obvious, there are two sensible alternatives. WTO, uh, we go on to WTO tariffs, uh, and we have a, uh, we pursue free trade areas which are completely legitimate within the WTO with whoever we can agree free trade areas with. And how that would work uh, depends on the other side the other sides of this, how many countries we can get to negotiate. I, I would stress you cannot assess the merits of a free trade area just by counting the numbers of free trade areas you have uh, or even the number of trade covered by amount of trade covered by it. But that's a t t sort of small point. But that's the one possibility. You go to WTO tariffs, including with the Europeans, and you see what free trade areas you can agree possibly including the Europeans, and uh, we'll see. We'll see how. And the second alternative, which seems to be sort of logical, given Gerard's premises, is to do Hong Kong, go for unilateral free trade. Um, that opens you up to the world. It eliminates your trade bargaining, but that's okay, uh, because there is an argument that unilateral free trade is optimal. But these are two quite different strategies, and you have to be pretty clear which, which one you're going for. From my own point of view, I regard the second as an empty set. There is absolutely zero chance of persuading the British to go for unilateral free trade. So, the, so effectively, we will be in the first of these two, WTO, by seeking free trade areas. And the question is, will these end up being much, much more beneficial for us across the range of our interests, including above all the really difficult issue of services, than doing it through the EU. And I think it completely unpersuasive that it would be better in the areas we really care about. We do care about services. We need clout to open services. And for that, we need the whole EU, in my view. Really, really interesting and useful uh, exchange there. I'm going to go to a few more points on the floor. The, the, the lady at the back with her hand up there, thank you very much. And then we'll take, uh, I'll take the gentleman in the middle here and then the lady here. Yeah, go ahead. 
Thank you very much. Uh, Kitty Usher, we've heard a lot about the um, trade effects. I wonder if I could push the panel a little on the long-term uh, effects on the domestic economy from leaving. I was very taken with Roger's point that we could perhaps just have trade standards uh, for exports for the 12% uh, and have the 88% separate. It seemed to me that the main long-term uh, route into this argument, putting aside the very sort of big crisis there will be in the short term, is through the innovation route from simply having greater competition from being an open economy. And I was wondering what the panel's view was uh, as to the long-term effects of not having that route through innovation, driving up productivity, driving up GDP growth from imports uh, from elsewhere, because quite simply we're all part of the same single market. Roger, just, do you want to give a very quick answer to that? Because Roger's not saying we shouldn't have import. I mean, no, it's, it's not an anti you're not anti-European trade, as I understand. No, certainly not. I mean, I, I think the uh, uh, vast majority of European trade would continue. Um, some of it, uh, I guess, would not, but the vast majority would continue. Uh, and that bit of it that was attenuated would probably re be replaced by trade with other countries around the world. So I don't really think that we'd end up... Uh, in the dire position you, your question seems to uh, assume. But more generally, there is a question, I think, about how Britain would react to these circumstances. And again, it's impossible to, to tell, because a lot will depend upon the political complexion of the country. It's possible, I think, that we would be driven towards a sort of, um, Martin Wolf talked about Hong Kong, but quite apart from trade policy of Hong Kong, towards a, uh, a deregulatory low-tax solution. It's possible we would go in that direction. It's possible, of course, we would be driven in completely the opposite direction, which could be very, very dangerous. Uh, and and as, to go back to what I said before, that's why it's impossible to be hard and fast about what the costs and benefits are. Is that are. a gamble worth taking, in your view? Because, of course, it is, it is possible that the elite, the kind of the establishment, the people who sit in this room voting 86% to stay in the EU, um, having just had the abject humiliation of everything they stand for, being kicked out by the populace, would be not the time to say, okay, now how can we liberalise trade? How do we deregulate and make your job less secure? How do we do all the things that the public have expressed enormous dissatisfaction over and are doing so in such obvious ways? Yes, well, unsurprisingly, I'll go back to a point that I made um, before um, Martin either attacked it or ignored it. The, <laughs> fact, the fact of the matter is that the European Union is not a great economic success. Um, its economic performance over the last 20 years is very poor. And somehow or other, this gets obscured in this debate. And it's very important for those of you on the other side from Jared and myself to explain and come to terms with why it has not done very well. Why is it? Is this completely accidental? Or might it have something to do with the EU? I think I know the answer. It's because of the way the EU makes its decisions, the euro being the worst of the lot. OK, well, I have to respond to that. Yeah, we'll, no, we'll just, we'll just let's try and get through more points. So we've got a cluster of questions here. The gentleman, yeah, reaching out with his, yeah, in the middle. You, yes, that's it. Um, this may not work. Just tell us who you are. Uh, sorry, Peter Westaway, Vanguard. This may not work for the population as a whole, but in front of a bunch of economists, um, I think the issue of what the ultimate effect on GDP is going to be is really important. Obviously, that was a big focus of the Treasury study. Um, the last question actually touched on this as well. So can I ask Roger and Gerard whether they think GDP in the UK would be lower as a result of us leaving the EU? If the answer is no, can they point to some 
empirical estimates or any academic study that bears that out? What, what are the key assumptions that we need to believe to stand that up? If the answer is that actually, yes, we do think it will be low, but we still believe that Brexit's the right way to go, and, and Gordon Brown tonight drew our attention to a survey that said that a lot of people don't base their decision on, on whether or not GDP is lower. Uh, how much would GDP need to fall before you'd change your mind? <laughs> and have you stopped beating your wife? I think that's a good... No. Um, so, so let's just I'm going to amend your question. GDP per capita is what you mean, I think. Yeah, GDP per capita. Yeah, Gerard, do you want to yeah. uh, quickly... OK, well, in 2014... We, I did a detailed report for the Mayor of London that looked at this, and we spent a year talking to businesses across London. In terms of, and Freddie, to your answer, a third of sectors, or sectors that accounted for a third of gross value added in London and a quarter of employment in London said being in the EU was very important. Two thirds of sectors who did not, basically said it did not really matter, and they accounted for three quarters of um, basically, uh, four-fifths of in outputs in London. So it varied by businesses. We also did scenarios in and out of the EU um, and different assumptions. We got some outside independent forecasters, Volterra, etc., to look at this. Uh, the general consensus was that if you look over the near-term first couple of years, economists as a group always say any change always has some cost to it. But if we, you look over a couple of business cycles, as we did, the two scenarios that were best by a long way were to be in a truly reformed EU and to be outside in Brexit, being global, having World Trade Organization rules, and actually uh, coming back to Kitty's question about focusing on ICT productivity and the productivity gap between the European Union versus the states. At third, and a, a long way behind, uh, was being in an unreformed EU. And a lot of the debate generally, maybe even here tonight, is almost this virtual reality world that people think the EU is not as it is, but as they would like it to be, coming back to Roger's point. But the important point is the fourth, by a long way, was to be outside in Brexit, to be inward-looking, decide you didn't want to do trade deals, head in the sands. So it does depend not only on being in or out, but what you do if you're in or out. But if I was to compare what I think are the most likely scenarios, being in an unreformed EU and being outside but global on Brexit, um, actually over a 20-year period, those assumptions suggested that it would add four and a half times as many jobs in the London economy being global with Brexit than being in an unreformed EU. And that was outside independent forecasters. So I don't buy your question that it implies a fall in GDP. You could construct a scenario in the near term where it is a big shock. But as I touched on, I think we, we as an economy can cope somewhat with shocks. Thanks. This is very good. Okay, we're going to take, I'm going to take three points back to back. And then I'm going to let... Um, so we'll take the gentleman here. Uh, is it David? Yep. And um, then we'll take the lady behind. Yeah, go ahead. David Halley, I'm a member of the CER. I wonder if the two remainers could just have a shot at the advantages from a digital level playing field, a wider liberalization of services, a capital market union, and an energy uh, policy uh, that assures both security and more competition how much that could be quantified at, because, of course, that's not covered in the Treasury's document. They, they didn't take... take the yes, they didn't take any account of that they at didn't, all. They didn't uh, factor so in potential It would benefits. be nice if you could just 
give you one. Stephanie, and the two on your two on your right. I wonder. I know you're economists, but could you just possibly have a shot at negotiability of all these options? Right. So that does matter. You hold know. these thoughts, Stephanie. I'll come to you first on that very point. Um, and yes, question behind. Go ahead. Sorry, the lady behind. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <coughs> Monique Abel from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. Um, I have a question about services trade. So I think it was mentioned um, by Roger and Jared that the EU's services market isn't as liberalized as we would like it to be. While that might be true, I'm interested to know which other free trade agreements you're aware of that actually involve more comprehensive freedom of trade and services, in particular financial services. And if you aren't aware of any, then where do you think the greener pastures for services trade, in particular financial services trade, would lie for the UK outside of the EU, particularly taking into account that trading financial services and passporting involves agreeing a common rule book and a common regulatory framework for banking? So who do you think we could agree that with better than we can do that with the EU? Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a few more questions. Uh, we'll come over to this side, the lady in the red cardigan here. Yeah, thanks. Walter Czerkli from the London School of Economics. Um, I would just briefly like to, to challenge the idea that the euro is just a bad thing for, for the, the UK. Um, when Ireland was bailed out, the, higher, the, the, the national banking system that was most exposed to Ireland was the UK banking system on an ultimate risk basis. And you paid about a risk premium of 3% to be part of that, and the rest was borne by the Eurozone. Uh, the same is true for the clearing business that uh, UK banks or UK clearing houses have. Without a swap line to the ECB, you could very quickly run into liquidity crisis. And my last point refers also to trade. Why is it that US business actually uh, lobbies its own government to adopt EU standards because they have high transaction costs when they trade within the United States where there are no common standards among the states. That's an interesting, interesting point. Okay, we'll take the gentleman right at the back there with his arm very firmly up. Yep. Thank you. Um, Ashwin Kumar, Liverpool Economics. Um, Gerard, you talked quite a lot about London and m implicitly saying it's synonymous with the UK economy. But if you're sitting in um, the northeast of England, in Cornwall, in Northern Ireland, certainly in Merseyside, um, there have been periods of time when you have not really seen Whitehall as a friend, but actually you've seen the EU symbol on infrastructure investment projects um, and, and apparently little interest from, from, from Whitehall. D what does the panel think are the implications of Brexit for, um, for regional inequality in the UK and, and the likely consequences of that for the future of the UK as a nation state and perhaps for sterling as a single currency area? What's your answer to that, sir? Because I, I, well, I, I'm I, guessing you have a view. I guess my observation would be that it hasn't universally been the case. There have been periods of time when the UK national government has invested fairly significantly in other parts of the UK. But at present, the, the differential in infrastructure spending is so great that it effectively uh, creates a sort of macroeconomic transfer I mean, there is um, towards London, the South There East. is an argument that the exchange rate would fall pretty substantially if we left. The city of London would be very badly hit. And the exchange rate effect would actually rebalance things because the sort of manufacturing heartlands of the north would be 
more competitive than they are on the on the on the existing uh, on the existing arrangement. Um, we'll take the gentleman right at the very back, whose hand is up, or I can see a hand up at the back on this side. Sorry, I can't see whose hand it is. And then we'll take some comments. Hello, um, my name is Nigel Wicks. Oh, Nigel, um, sorry, I can't. I can't see. Uh, can I um, really get down to sort of the practicalities of negotiation? Um, and I have to say, if I was involved in the negotiation to leave, in the context of Article 50, it gives the most enormously uh, disadvantage, enormous disadvantage to the uh, state that has given its, uh, uh, notifies its intention to leave. Um, in fact, you've effectively got two years to do it, and if you can't come to an agreement within two years, you just have, you just, you just, at, you're just out without any agreement whatsoever. And bear in mind, too, that um, the leaving member state is not at all party within the European Council or to any of the negotiations uh, that goes between the member states. So you know, that seems to me a very good rep recipe for either a diktat or a fait accompli, uh, which we would have to face. Now, with that comment and the awfulness of the invocation of uh, the notification on Article 50, what does the panel think should be the timing of giving that notification if the answer from the referendum was to leave? The Prime Minister has said, the day, virtually he said, the day after the, the vote, if the vote is to leave, we will notify. And then the two years starts to run. Would the panel think that is the right negotiating tactic or would the panel think it better to, uh, to start the negotiations before giving the former, the former notification. Hmm. I want your answer to that, actually, well, what, you, 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 I'm, I'm guessing from the question that you think it might be an idea to, to, to delay the formal, get, stop the meter ticking until as late as well, possible. first of all, I'd hope not to start from that particular right. point. <laughs> but having, if we were to start from that particular point, I wouldn't want to put myself in a cul-de-sac, as it were, where after two years... Right. Uh, you're, you're, you're really stuck. And remember, the extension of two years has to be by unanimity of the whole mm. of the, uh, the my, other 27. So my understanding is, and I'd be interested in your comment on this, is that, of course, the EU isn't a thing. The EU is a conflict of interests of, yes. of, of, of 27 remaining members. And the usual practice is to recognise, the pro to give more weight to the members who have really big vested interests in a particular issue. And Ireland, possibly Denmark and Holland, and then the Netherlands, would just be saying, we have to come to a deal because we're not going to last three minutes if the UK plays hardball, and the rest would find that persuasive. Is that, does that sound true to you? Yes, that sounds true, but I also think that some other member states might bring onto the table other issues, long-standing issues, with some, one of which is... Uh, been an irritant to a member state since the early part of the 18th century, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Uh, so that a lot of extraneous issues could be put on the table and negotiating concessions sought. So I think it would be a most horrendous negotiation and uh, I would hate to be part of the UK negotiating team. But I'd be very interested in what the um, panel thinks. Right. Well, panel, we've got a lot. Of, do you want to just answer that one specifically, Roger? Yes, I must say, I'm very, rather amused by our Prime Minister, who thinks he's in a position to lose the referendum and then immediately uh, institute departure proceedings under Article 50. 
I think he should listen to his erstwhile colleague, Ken Clark, who's told him he'd be out in 30 seconds. It'd be rather odd, wouldn't it, to say, oh, by the way, uh, press the button, Article 50, and then straight afterwards, oh, that's it, I'm off. Uh, what a legacy that would be. Uh, no, I think he wouldn't be in a position to choose. Uh, obviously, it would be a chaotic uh, situation. We'd have to have some sort of interim government, uh, interim because the Conservative Party would have to go through an election process to elect a new leader, but someone would have to be Prime Minister in the interim, and I'm assuming it wouldn't be David Cameron. So I think it's utterly bizarre that he would actually press the button for Article 50. Right. The sensible thing to, to do would surely be not to do that and to begin preliminary negotiations before Article 50 was invoked. Now, we've had a lot of points uh, here. We have about another five minutes left before we take our final vote. So what I'm proposing to do is to let each member of the panel comment on as many points they have heard and feel have been addressed to them or they feel they have a comment to make on. Um, I'm aware that this side has had more of the speaking, and in a way that's natural because there's more, if you like, question to the, the point of view you've been expressing. But, Stephanie, I wonder if you could start... Um, and particularly, make sure you answer David Hanley's quest uh, questions about potential upsides. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's two things, I guess, I want to respond to. One is to respond specifically on that point. I mean, the things that you highlighted, whether it's the services or the level playing field on digital or uh, capital market union, I mean, they, they clearly, if they happen, would be positive for us within the EU and positive for the EU. I would argue, and actually, you know, following on what Roger has said, they might be more beneficial for other countries in the EU than for us. That certainly would be the case, with, I think, for capital market union and for some other things. And I guess you could say that we would get those benefits of those things happening, at least some of the benefits from Europe getting the growth advantages of that, even if we were not in the EU. But it does seem to me there's this sort of rather odd argument that Roger has made, which is going from the fact that, by his definition, European countries' performance has not been very good, and that seems to have something to do with the, the fact that other countries have not taken advantage or have not particularly have thrived in certain ways within the EU and not taken it taken a lot of the reform agendas that have happened with the EU as a reason to deregulate and move forward. It doesn't seem to be a reason for us not to be in. It doesn't, I don't understand that, that connection at all. But I think we could be clear. You know, already there are great strains in the EU, whether it's a migration crisis or other things, that have made it difficult to f push forward with this kind of integration agenda. The Eurozone crisis has made it harder to push forward with those kind of agendas. And we should be, to respond also to the, one of the first questions, we should be in no doubt that those things will be even less likely to happen if we leave, because it'll be even harder to summon that kind of... Um, and there certainly will be fewer voices arguing for those kind of reforms, which will be good for Europe in its own right. Can I also respond, which is partly some of the arguments I've made up here, but also here. The, you know, the euro has been held out as um, a reason, you know, all the negative stuff about the euro and the eurozone and why we didn't ever like it and why it's caused us enormous damage and everything else has ended up often being used on the other side. Um, none of the people up here thought it was a good idea for Britain to join the Eurozone. I don't think anyone here actually thought the Eurozone, and any, with any number of countries, any large number of countries, was a good idea. Um, and the fact that it exists, the fact that it's had the crisis it's had, the changes that that's set in train, unarguably, we have to admit on this side, has made things a bit less attractive for us within the EU and has offers the prospect of making it harder for us to be in the EU, get the best of both worlds, be in the EU 
but not be in the euro. But to go back to Martin's point, then we can leave if it becomes too difficult, if it becomes challenging, um, we can leave. You know, the, the key difference, and this is, you know, it is the great argument you can say, oh, people argued, you know, the people on the other side argued for us to be in the euro and they were wrong, it didn't do us any damage that we weren't in. There was a conflict between uh, at that time, there was presented as a, as a conflict between our influence within Europe and our economic sort of self-interest and our ability to chart our own course. And in that argument, thank goodness, the sort of economic argument won. The economic, we saw the downsides of the economic argument and we didn't go in. I actually have come to think in retrospect that the, self, the truly selfless thing for us to have done um, would have been to join because Britain would have blown it up and then we, the whole world would not have had to deal with the Eurozone for very long because we would have immediately destroyed it. But, <laughs> well, not immediately, but over a relatively short period. But, you know, we did discover that some of those arguments about influence uh, were not as great as others on the other side, not here, painted them. But in this case, there is no clear conflict between the economics and the arguments of influence and soft power and integration and national security and all those things. They all point in the same way. So I think continually appealing to that previous debate is just, uh, is just misleading. Interesting one. Um, Gerard, I'd like you to go next, if you would. And I, if you could, just uh, among any other comments you want to make, answer that very specific point about is there any better service trade deal anywhere in the world than the one we're currently in with the rest of the okay. EU? Well, let me come to that. Um, there was three points, including that. One was the question earlier about the impact on the EU if we leave. I think the important point to stress is there's considerable uncertainty, as Roger and I have touched on, about the future of the EU. This is not a static situation. Uncertainty in terms of economic terms, but also, let's be honest, uncertainty in terms of how they will treat us. If, after all we asked for, we got even less than we asked for, they've called our bluff. They know that we moan and don't do anything about it. And so, therefore, we are sort of slightly isolated. And it comes on very relevantly to the city. There's all this conversation as if, though, the city is going to suffer if we leave. I don't agree with that. But no one seems to take on board the fact the city could be very much penalised if we stay. We did not get a veto between the Eurozone and the non-Eurozone. The government itself pointed out two years ago, quote, the declining ability of the UK to influence the regulatory environment in the financial sector, citing the bankers' bonus tax, the short selling, and the financial transactions tax. Also, everyone says they're going to treat us horribly. In 1992, lest we forget, the German authorities changed the minimum reserve requirements for repos and others to move the business to Frankfurt to basically boost Bund and Bund futures. They effectively instructed the German banks to move all those desks to Frankfurt. They did. Within two years, all those desks were back in London. And when Deutsche Bank made their comment last week, there was John Crime, the head of it, did at one of the sentences say, uh, but at the end of the day, we do need to have to go where the clients are and where the market is. And that tends to be in London. So let's, and that leads on to the question. As I said earlier, there is no financial sector does not figure in trade deals because we see only a handful of countries across the world that are experts in the financial sector. And in terms of the service sector, because we're the main service sector economy within the European Union, this is why the single market 
in services not working properly is a big issue for the UK, and it possibly explains why, when it comes to so-called trade deals, the, U the EU rarely actually addresses issues linked to the service sector. Maybe just to finish on the regional point, the UK has given competency in many areas to the European Union. I read a few weekends ago the cohesion well, probably a couple of months ago, the cohesion paper, which dealt with the question the guy asked. There are two parts of the UK that are net beneficiaries. One is Cornwall and the City Isles, and the other is some of the islands off the west coast of Scotland. Um, the, but in the same report, I remember reading Wales, I think, was over whatever period it was, 58,000 jobs, I think, had been generated by EU grants, and there was lots of quotes saying it was great. Then almost a couple of pages later, it was pointing out, actually, the money was badly spent. And this is the gist of the whole regional policy, that we don't have a proper regional policy in the UK. We had a chancellor who recognised, who understood economics. We were having infrastructure spending all over this country at the moment. But the reality is we gave cohesion policy regional policy effectively to the EU. Therefore, it's no surprise there's lots of EU boards that spend. But we could actually, in answer to your question, directly spend that money better out of the savings that Roger touched on. Thank you. Martin, any points you want to pick up? Um, as quickly as possible. Uh, yeah, I understand. That, really. uh, yeah. Not everybody wants to listen to another 20 minutes of me. So I will... I will um, there are so many wonderful questions. I, I think I will end up with three. One, there are a number of questions, and I did comment on it, it's not that I ignored it, about the future of the EU without the UK and the implications thereof. Um, I would make the following point, which it does seem to me that the people on the other side are ignoring. The future of the European continent in every possible dimension is a vital interest of the UK. And anyone who doesn't understand that uh, basically uh, has never really thought about our position. And it seems to me unambiguous that in terms of everything we care about in the way the European continent will be run, our withdrawal will make it worse. And I could go through many aspects of it. It seems to be unambiguous. And those effects will matter. And they matter not only to us, but also to the Americans, as the, uh, Mr. Obama rightly points out. And but one of the consequences which I did stress is that important countries will consider one of the consequences of this the potential for unraveling of the EU itself. And that will be seen by them as a vital, to prevent this, as a vital national interest. Therefore, they must punish us. They must. If I were asked by Angela Merkel what to do, to about this, I would say, make them bleed. Sorry, that is, you simply cannot understand the position of Germany in the world if you don't understand this simple point. So the idea that this will all be harmonious and peaceful is crazy. The next point, and that follows to Nigel, sorry, Nigel's point, what the only rational policy, it seems to me, for Britain, once we make this insane vote, is to say we will go to the WTO. We don't want any other further deals with you. Uh, we are going to withdraw fully and completely. Uh, I don't care whether it's David Cameron or someone else. We will ask for our 
Article 50. We're not going to trouble you further, and that's it. That seems to me the simplest thing. We're not going to get into complicated negotiation, and as Gerard said, we're very flexible, and we're going to be able to live with this consequence. The final point I would stress, uh, this is, uh, I have to leave with something lighter. The only thing about Brexit which has sometimes really consoled me is the hope that it will really damage the city. But I'm now <laughs> But I, but I am now told by Gerard that isn't true. So, so the last reason for Brexit has gone. Final word, Roger, please. Sorry, to be I'll as be brief very, as possible. I'll be very brief. First of all, on Stephanie's point, uh, where she said I, I, I made her out a bizarre point, um, I didn't think it was bizarre, actually. Uh, it is true to say that, obviously, some countries in Europe have done much better than others. Some have adopted better policies and deregulated, and it's open to the others to adopt those. That's true. I was concentrating on the general Europe-wide policies which had harmed their economic performance, of which the most serious is the euro. And, obviously, you can't just opt out of it. If you're in it, uh, you could leave, possibly. It's a different question altogether. Now, I know we're not in it. My point all along has been, why did Europe do it? And the fact that Europe did it, what does that say about the nature of Europe's institutions and the mistakes it's going to make in the future? Um, on the point about the effect of Brexit on the EU, raised by the gentleman from the University of Leicester, um, I think it's right that there would be a serious impact. The question is, what do you make of that? And it goes back to the central questions, what do you think is the sort of path that the EU's on? I think it's on a path towards disaster. The EU is, didn't start this way, but it's become, partly because of the euro, but other, other things, it's become a serious inhibition to economic growth in Europe. It is the leading factor holding Europe back. So I would say, actually, if uh, Brexit led to a fundamental reform of the EU, which it broke up or it became unrecognisable, that's a fantastic thing. And lastly, the one point I've heard from the other side this evening... I don't mean something above, um, uh, that I thought was really very interesting and quite appealing, was this one about optionality. That's to say, you haven't got to leave now, you could leave later. Uh, I thought it was really, really rather nice, but I also thought it was politically extremely naive and empty. It's taken us 40 years to get to this point. I mean, if you're of the uh, inkling that you want to leave, do you, does it really make sense to say, OK, it's pretty bloody awful, but we'll stick it for a few more years, and then some nice chap like David Cameron will decide to give us the option to leave? I don't think so. No. Right, ladies and gentlemen, it's been badly chaired, this event, because we're way over time, but I did, I'm glad you've stayed. Pick up your handsets. We're going to have a vote. We're going to have a vote. And the, you'll see the question there. Have you all got your handsets? Are you ready? Yeah. It is the same as we had before. Leaving the EU. Leaving the EU would damage the UK economy. One means agree it would damage the economy. Two means disagree. And three is it would not make much difference. If you would vote now, please. It was 86% before. <laughs> We have persuaded someone that it would make a difference. 
Um, if it this was George Osborne, he'd be saying our support has gone up by 40%. Yes, he would. Yeah. You're correct. As I said, given the starting point, you have to win. Did we have another bit of analysis there, one which shows what kinds of people voted which way? Okay, now this one's going to take us time to work out. So academic economists are agreeing more than average. Business economists a bit less. Public sector economists... There are only two. There are only two, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was one of them. And there's, there's only one journalist. Okay, that's not so helpful. But look, very, very useful. Actually, I didn't think it possible. I didn't think it was possible that we would hear points that hadn't already been made in this debate, but we did hear some points that hadn't already been made. So that was uh, great. Um, well done, guys. You put up a good fight. It was obviously, uh, it was obviously, it's the CER's mailing list. And it was always going to be a long shot, let's face it. But you made some very interesting and good points. And um, the mood of the meeting, I think, is clear. So let's uh, call it there. But let's thank our speakers. <laughs>